Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and the effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Mary M. Claire and Gary Ferguson will join us to discuss full ecology. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world-famous question of the week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. the Grok's Science Show. Well, the changes to the global environment are concerning. How can we develop the inner resolve to confront these changes? Joining us today to discuss this issue is Dr. Mary M. Clare and Mr. Gary Ferguson. Dr. Clare is a fellow in the American Psychological Association, published more than 100 scholarly articles and two books. Mr. Ferguson is the award-winning and internationally recognized author of 26 books, most recently The Carry Home and The Eight Master Lessons of Nature. Today they have penned a new book entitled Full Ecology, Repairing Our Relationship with the Natural World. And Mary, Gary, thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. It's delightful to be here. Thanks for having us. Thank you, Charles. We should, of course, mention you're both husband and wife. Well, how did you decide to put this book together? Well, it, it sort of happened. We actually have only been married for about eight years now. And about eight years ago when we met and started walking and talking and walking and talking and walking, and then we talked a lot. We realized that Gary's work in the conservation sciences and my lifetime of work in social sciences really overlapped a lot, in particular in the face of climate breakdown and climate change. That the things that Gary would mention about the natural world mapped onto the social world and vice versa in ways that made it clear to us that if we as human beings really want to be of, of help here in this mess, that we could do well by turning to the natural world and listening to what it has to show us for the solutions that are right here in our nature as nature. Yeah, I would be talking about wolves or orcas or chimpanzees or lions or elephants and some of the superpowers they exhibited as far as what allowed them to not just survive but thrive. And then Mary would, as she suggested, come up with examples of how those very same qualities, those superpowers, if you will, show up in the human world as well. And so I guess that shouldn't be too surprising when you stop and think, well, hey, we humans are nature too. It would make sense that we were hardwired with some of the same strategies uniquely expressed for our species, of course, but the same strategies that the rest of life on this planet have. And so one of the first superpowers is, I think they're quite common. It's a fact of connection. The way that the natural world functions is because of connection. It is just this exquisitely logical and beautiful interweaving of being. We in human community Gosh, we kind of tripped and made a wrong turn when we got hooked on the notion that we are individuals separate from all else. And when we started with this separation thinking way back 500 years ago, it really got set in. We set ourselves on a course being separate from the natural, believing ourselves separate from the natural world in ways that left that world open to domination rather than being our relative. <laughs> 
Yeah, you know, there's there's the the biological reality of how connected we are, our melatonin levels being set by daylight and that melatonin not only helping us sleep, but probably it looks like helping prevent cancer. The fact that more than half of the cells in our bodies are microbes that came to live with us after we were on this planet, after we were born. All of the fight inside healthy chemicals we breathe in that trees and other vegetation exude that strengthen our immune systems. So we've got that porousness, that connectivity. And then as humans, we've often been identified, I think correctly so, as the or one of the most cooperative species on on planet Earth. And that's how we've been able to be so successful. So despite all the divisions going on right now, it would probably serve us well to, to remember that we're wired to come up with great creative solutions by virtue of our ability to cooperate with one another. And so full ecology is really a guide for our collective healing from this illusion that we are separate from the natural world. That has caused us no end of trouble, and we're standing in the middle of it right now. Is that division, do you think, restricted to parts of the world which is highly developed and separated more from nature? Are there other societies that haven't lost that connection that we can learn from? I think that it is a, a very common trait among modern Western culture folks. Mary mentioned 500 years ago that that benchmark, and that was really the beginning of Western science in, in a big, big way uh, through the Enlightenment, which gave us wonderful technologies and abilities to sort of figure out and manage the world in a way that kept us comfortable and safe. But it's predicated on a tool called the scientific method, which is a kind of objectification, a holding the thing you want to study in complete isolation to the extent you can do that, remove yourself from it, remove it from the context of the world, so you can divine a certain truth or set of truths about its behavior. And that's a wonderful, wonderful tool, but it is so far from the truth that other extremely important ability to see from a higher perspective, to see connectivity, to see holistically, that I think has not only been forgotten by us, but but that has maintained itself in lots and lots of other cultures, lots of indigenous cultures. Some of what science is figuring out now about how connected we are is really just what indigenous people have been saying and living for thousands and thousands of years. And And it really is deeply about culture. It's about culture. Because the fact of the matter is, we with our frontal lobes, as long as those have been online for humans... We go through this process from infancy going forward, really early on, around six months. A baby has the experience of seeing that when the rattle goes underneath the table, that it actually still exists, or the ball rolls under the couch, that it still exists. And with that first awareness, that's the first formation of the experience of self separate from other. Then it's up to culture, whether the culture is one that continues pulling you into this orientation that is individual, which is really quite frightening if you think about it. If I really am separate from everything else, that's pretty terrifying. And I got to spend a lot of time watching my back and so on and so forth. And we all have that feeling, especially in Western cultures. But in many other cultures, the emphasis is less on that. Yes, you have that experience as you get older, but you come to see that everything that you are is interwoven with everything else and that your well-being is dependent on the well-being of everything. That's something that we've lost in what we can call dominant culture on the globe. So I do think that it is a global thing, not just Western. Mm -hmm. 
Well, connection, as you mentioned, this is one of the eight instructions of nature that you talk about and some of the other lessons from nature that we have lost in our modern society. One that comes to my mind right next to connection is diversity, the power of diversity. Again, just going to the biological level, that's the number one predictor of resiliency in any ecosystem, any life system on planet Earth. The more players they are, the longer the game tends to go on, you might say. There's diversity across species where, say, within a certain beehive, you'll have bees that are generalists, and they'll go to all kinds of different flowers to see what they can collect, some of which will be total bust. And the same hive will have specialists that focus on flowers that are predictably good. Birds have different behaviors, aggressive versus more patient and social, as do many mammals. And then there's the diversity of, of the species itself that allow, say, a forest to recover after some of the burning that's going on right now in the West where we live. Those forests will come back by virtue of the diversity of species that will repopulate right after the fire. The water being held by the plants that allow the sapling to grow, the pollinators coming back in and making sure that that diversity rises and you end up with a strong system, whereas if you had two or three or four different kinds of plants, it would be much more subject to complete destruction. And so in human interaction, we know here's one is if you ever have to be in front of a jury, you want that jury to be diverse. You want those people to be from many different backgrounds, because we know from the research in the social sciences that the more diverse the backgrounds of the people who are on the jury, the fairer the decision that that jury makes. It shows up in refereed scientific articles as well that when you have a research team that is made up of people from a variety of different backgrounds, then you get better results. The one that struck me as lost is the one of balance. Well, one of the things that strikes us about that is when you consider balance in terms of two ways that we behave, care and agency. And you can map those roughly onto what we think of when we think of feminine and masculine. And if you go back, way, way back, as long as humans have been trying to make sense philosophically and just existentially, there's an emphasis on this balance of the masculine and feminine within each person, within each community, within policy, within everything that we do. So the balance of the masculine and feminine, you can see in the natural world, it's being called forward in us. And in these days, with the dominant culture such as it is, it means a re-emergence and a nurturing and an encouragement and a drawing forward of the, the care aspect. I often think of, in terms of balanced regenerative agriculture, so-called regenerative agriculture, um, it's certainly happening in this country. But the, the example that I've studied a little bit more is happening in Central America, where there happens to be in the middle of the rainy season, uh, dry period. Typically, historically, it's lasted a couple of weeks. But with climate change, now it's lasting from 30 to 40 days. If you're growing corn or even soybeans, and many of those farmers down there are, 
that destroys your crops. And many people have had to leave their homes, leave their livelihoods and head north looking for a way to make a living and continue to feed their family. However, a number of farmers growing like crazy now have discovered the notion of regenerative agriculture. So they're leaving cover crops in. They're not plowing down the old uh, stalks from last year's harvest. So they're taking care of that soil in a way that encourages deepening roots, which hold the water, which allow those farmers who are practicing in that way to survive those 30-day droughts in, in a way that they weren't before. So they're working the land for their own benefit to feed their own family. So that's their agency, as Mary says. And then at the same time, they're realizing that they're in context with the land, that they need to take care of it. And if they reciprocate in the way they're doing, the community, if you will, will take care of them. The nature-based community will take care of them. And so you can see how interaction with the land in ways that are listening to the land, for example, in restorative agriculture, regenerative agriculture, that that, that informs culture, informs the way the people then are with each other and in their families and even with their own selves as we speak to ourselves. As the book is structured here, to stop, ask, act, and inspire. Well, here's the thing, Charles. It's like all of us are good-hearted selves. We want to fix stuff. And so when something shows up broken or not working, we act immediately. And the bad news, and this shows up in the literature too, we've got some good data on this, is that 80, 90% of the time we're answering the wrong question because we act so quickly. And so in this case, in the face of climate change, we do have the opportunity first to come to a complete stop, to practice that, to let ourselves stop over and over again, stop long enough to be able to take a look at the rule set that we're functioning under, at the, the myths that are driving us, to take a look at those things. And you can't do it if you don't stop because you're just going and going and going and it keeps reinforcing itself. So stop is the very first step. One of the amazing things about stopping is that when you do that over and over, when you just stop, then the answers kind of reveal themselves. It becomes so clear, the illusion that you've been functioning other. And then the action becomes way more relevant and then the funny thing is, funny thing, amazing thing, is that you don't have to even try and you're being inspiring. You are inspiring other people because you are in a place that is far more, as Gary and I say, in rhythm. It's in co-regulation with the natural world. It's nature and nature interacting more true to who we actually are. It's going to take generations to shift this back, but we got to get started. And that's, you know, the stopping discussion makes me always think of the fact that in a lot of the natural world, don't have the either opportunity or in this case, burden of frontal lobes. There's not a lot of worrying and uh, getting anxious over what might happen in the future or regretting in the past. The apple tree that Mary and I are looking out on right now, if for some reason caterpillars in the spring start to attack its leaves, it's in that leaves. In that moment, it will exude the airborne chemicals that call in the neighborhood wasps. 
so that they will eat the caterpillars and the tree will survive. It's always reacting to what the reality is right now. And so the stopping is so important so we can begin then through asking to take stock of what's real. Uh, is my entire belief system as reliable as I thought it was or is there another kind of reality that uh, I want to align my life with and try to grow and support? The the Full Ecology Project is geared towards empowering people to learn these lessons to changes taking place. You know, it's oddly, we keep saying, check and see if there's anything anywhere on the whole planet, such as a rugged individual. And that's just check that out. And the other question, related question we have is we invite people to just take it easy and spend the next week, as often as you think of it, checking to see if you end where your skin ends. So these are small kind of questions, but the way that full ecology takes hold and that we repair our relationship with the natural world is by acting locally. You know that saying from the environmental movement, think globally, act locally. Well, you can't get much more local than the way you're making sense of the world. And so there's a place to start. And that's full ecology draws our attention there, even as it understands that we are better actors, we have better effect when we move from that more integrated and more true, truly natural place. And I think we would say that full ecology begins with what's working. We all know what's not working, but what is working is the power we have of connectivity, of diversity, of efficiency, of elderhood, of all these different qualities. And one of the things that I find myself benefiting from in full ecology is this growing sense of kinship, not only with other human beings, but with the world at large. And so climate change doesn't only appear as oh my God, another bag full of responsibilities that I've got to worry about and, and stress over. It's an opportunity to walk into an awareness of how deeply connected and, and full of kin, if you will, we really are. And acting on behalf of the planet then becomes like acting on behalf of the love you have for your, your children your or your family. Mm-hmm. And that's a kind of attitude that in turn supports the creative energy necessarily to not only begin, but sustain social change, sustain technological creativity. Those things are all within our grasp, but sometimes the underlying energy and commitment is lacking because it all seems like such a burden and such a weight. And there is another way to see the reality of where we are. And Gary and I often admit that we have no idea, no better idea than anybody, whether or not the species is going to make it. We can't say. We do know, looking out from here, that we're perfectly capable of destroying ourselves. But we're also perfectly capable, and the way that we've made it as far as we have, evolutionary biology shows us, is that we cooperate. And so the opportunity right now, and things like COVID and climate change put in our face, how do you want to live with each other? No matter what the future holds, how do you want to be in your life? and with the people and beings, other beings in your life. And that's where connection comes on real strong and balance and variety, diversity. Indeed, indeed. I'm curious if you both have any final words regarding Full Ecology Project. I do hope people will take a look. It's running on word of mouth a lot, and it's getting really good responses. So pick up a book. My last thought was just hold the thought in the coming week that you have everything you need. You really have been wired 
by virtue of you being on the tail end of lots and lots of evolutionary success, you like the rest of life on this planet are, are kind of champ. You're a champion. And so what you need is, is, is there and it's accessible to you and it will inform good decisions for as it has often in the past. And, and so that's what I would end with. We were just talking with Dr. Mary Ann Clare and Mr. Gary Ferguson. Their new book is entitled Full Ecology, Repairing Our Relationship with the Natural World. Mary, Gary, thank you so much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Thank you so much for having us, Charles. Thank you, Charles. It's been a pleasure. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.